Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, this is Mike Smith in for Simi. We'll be updating you on the coronavirus on the show today. Interesting what the United States is doing there, airlifting and evacuating American citizens and diplomats out of Wuhan, China. This is, of course, the ground zero for the outbreak of uh, coronavirus. Should Canada do the same thing? Check this out. There's a British teacher there. His Canadian-born wife is in Wuhan, China right now. Uh, she, uh, Tom Williams and his, his wife, Lauren, she is from Langley, and she's due to give birth next month. He wants her out of Wuhan as fast as possible. I don't blame him one bit. Here he is. I feel that other countries need to kind of follow suit now, particularly for people who are at higher risk, right? Like, I have to stay behind, so be it. But, you know, this is people's lives at the end of the day, and we need to, um, if we can get out, try and get out so that my wife can be guaranteed a safe birth. Okay, here's the hot question today. Should the federal government evacuate Canadian citizens trapped in Wuhan, China? Would you say yes or no? At CKNW on Twitter is where you'll find the hot question today. Give me a follow while you're there, please, at Mike Smith News, S-M-Y-T-H, Mike Smith News on Twitter. You'll find the hot question there as well. Phone me on the buzz line today, 604-331-BUZZ. Tell me what you think, 604 331 2899 and send me an email today as well mike at cknw.com let's talk about surrey mayor doug mccallum now and his showdown with uber now uber may be legal in the province now according to the provincial government they've got an operating license for all of metro vancouver uber didn't waste any time they started operating in surrey Right away, Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum doesn't like that one bit. This guy supports the taxi business. He hates these Uber drivers and Uber. He wants them out of town. So he's uh, putting a line in the sand there at Surrey City Hall. On the weekend, Surrey bylaw enforcement officers writing tickets to Uber drivers. Wow, where is this one going to go? There's an interesting meeting of Surrey City Council tonight where you can bet this is going to come up. Let's check in now with Diane Watts. She is the former mayor of Surrey, former conservative MP as well. Hi, thanks for coming on. Oh, my pleasure. Good morning. What do you think about the city of Surrey issuing these bylaw notices to these Uber drivers? It looks like they're just getting warnings for now. Well, they have to give warnings because there is no ride-hailing bylaw in place. And I mean, that's the first step that they have to go. But I I would suggest that it is about the company not having a business license as opposed to the drivers. It's it's like a restaurant not having a business license and you go and and find the servers, right? And so it's, uh, you know, it's a bit of a mess for sure. And I think, you know, there, there is a realization here that the provincial government has put in legislation for ride hailing. And so that's in place uh, right across the entire province. Now, if there are issues, you know, um, as the mayor stated, he wants a level playing field uh, for the taxi drivers, which is fine. But I certainly don't believe that this is the way to go about it. I mean, you know, we need to elevate the conversation and have a discussion with all of the stakeholders to look at, okay, what does that look like? And deal with those issues. I mean, this this way is just uh, very wrongheaded. Okay, we've there's been some reports this morning that the Uber drivers in Surrey that have been targeted here have received warning notices and that the Uber, Uber the company, has been fined $500 Per vehicle. Now, I've been corresponding this morning with Michael Van Hemmen, who is the general manager for Uber in Western Canada and also their media relations guy. They both say they're unaware of these fines. They say that they're aware of these warnings. They know their drivers are getting warned, but they're not aware of any fines at this point. So we're, we're trying to confirm exa- that point. But 
how is Surrey doing about this? I know you've been, ta- Diane, you've been talking to people about this action, this bylaw enforcement action that went down on the weekend and how it, how it's working. What's your understanding of what they actually did here? Well, my understanding is that, uh, you know, from, uh, from a number of people and, and there's, you know, I mean, uh, Councillor Linda Annis has been on and, and, uh, Jack Hundle's been on, uh, you know, they, in doing media, uh, over the weekend. But I, my understanding is that there's fake accounts that have been set up. And so when, you know, when an Uber driver is called, then they're, they're given, they're issued these warnings. And, uh, you know, I mean, these people are just trying to, to work. They're trying to, you know, make extra money and, and to target the drivers, I think is, uh, you know, is significantly unfair. The issue, the issue is with the provincial government. The issue is with Uber itself. And, and that's what I'm saying. If you've got issues, then you sit yeah. down and you have a discussion with the stakeholders and say, okay, you know, and, and I know that there, there are conversations to be had in terms of the issues around congestion, the boundary issues that the taxi drivers have brought up over and over again, where they can't cross into other cities. And uh, most certainly, I mean, Uber drivers can do that. So, I mean, there's an issue. So let's look for a resolution and, uh, and go from there. So it's, yeah. um, you know, there, there's ways to do things. And I think throwing a tantrum and acting like a two-year-old is not one of them. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, the city's certainly putting some resources into going after uber here uh i understand you heard diane that the city had set up some uh, some fake uber accounts to kind of trap these uber drivers this is like shooting fish in a barrel i mean this is not exactly undercover police work here it's pretty easy but i I hear that (laughs) exactly oh man it's ridiculous i heard that you heard that one of the fake accounts was under the name cindy smith is that correct Oh, Cindy Smith. Yes, I think that's Cindy been, Smith. Uh, that's been circulating. Uh, that's certainly been circulating uh, around to, for a number of people, for sure. Cindy and, Smith. Uh, okay. Yeah, all, I, the, all the Uber drivers out there, if you're listening, if you get a call from someone named Cindy Smith, do not yeah. respond. Because <laughs> it's like, do you have that Admiral Akbar, Dwayne? It's a trap. It's a trap. If Cindy Smith contacts you for an uber car do not fall into the trap it's doug mccallum he's coming to get you i think this is ridiculous why are they do you think this is a wise use of city resources going after uber oh absolutely not you know it's not because you the provincial legislation is in place and if you have issues you sit down with the stakeholders and have those discussions and right. also too i mean this is putting staff in a terrible terrible position and when you know there's directives coming out of the mayor's office uh to to city staff and you know they're forced to uh undertake uh, the action that I'm sure they do not want to take. Um, it's it's terrible. It's absolutely terrible because it comes back on them. They're in a in a bad position, and uh, you know it it it's, well, it's just not a good scenario all the way around. Well, yeah, because I guess as bylaw enforcement officers, they're standing there thinking like, well, my boss is telling me to go and write up these tickets to these Uber drivers. But on the other hand, the provincial government, which is like the senior level of government here, is saying you're not allowed to keep Uber cars out of your city because they're legal. We have legalized Uber now, and they have an operating license from the Passenger Transportation Board to operate throughout Metro Vancouver, including Surrey. So I think you're right. I think it does put these bylaw enforcement officers in a difficult spot. But, uh, hey, if they work for the city of Surrey, I guess they got to do what they're told, though, right? Well, that's exactly it. They have to. They have to follow direction. They have to do what they're being told, and as well as uh, as the managers and senior managers. I mean, they're given a directive, and I mean, you know, they're in their job by purview of uh, mayor and council. So, you know, it gets really ugly when when people are. Uh, put in that position and are told to, you know, follow the orders of a mayor that that is, um, you know, going down a path that has no good result at the end of the day. Okay, we've asked for Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum to come on the show today, and we're we're still trying to get him on. Do you support uh, ride-hailing yourself? I support ride-hailing, and, you know, when I was mayor, 
um, previously, we put in a policy around um, around ride hailing. And what that looked like was to make sure that people coming into the city for ride hailing, you would have a proper license, you would have the proper insurance, and you would have a vehicle that would, had maintained a certain standard. Now, those were reasonable things to ask for. And at the time, the taxi industry, again, had said, you know, we want a level playing field, which um, I have no issue with um, at all. Because, I mean, if we're going to look at this as a transportation issue, whether you've got ride hailing, whether you've got the taxi industry, it should be a level playing field. So there are issues there that need to be addressed. But but you're saying, but are you saying, though, that in the meantime, this company should be allowed to operate in Surrey right now, today? Well, it's it's already, uh, provincial legislation is already in place. Right. So, yes, I mean, it's, you know, it, it is there. Okay, so nice. the issues that are under that legislation, yeah. that's where you want to deal with it and get a resolution to it. Uh, Diane Watts, thank you very much for coming on today. My pleasure. I appreciate it. That is Diane Watts. She is the former mayor of Surrey. Let's keep talking now about the fight between Uber and the city of Surrey. Surrey bylaw enforcement officers on the weekend Stopping Uber drivers and writing them up, issuing them warning tickets. Surrey City Council uh, getting set to meet tonight. Of course, this all goes back to the fight uh, between Uber and the city and Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum, who's a big supporter of the taxi industry, saying and McCallum saying that the city would not issue business licenses to Uber and Lyft, even though both those big ride-hailing companies have been approved to operate throughout Metro Vancouver. Where is this showdown going to go? Let's check in with Surrey City Councillor Linda Annis. Now, I'm very pleased to welcome her. Councillor, thank you for coming on. My pleasure, Mike. Okay, now you, I know you've been following the situation all through the weekend. What, is your, what are your thoughts on what happened over the weekend? Maybe you could tell people what you understand went down here. Well, I think it's absolutely shocking. Uh, bylaw officers were instructed from senior management to call Uber and ride-hailing services as if they were a resident from Surrey, get them out to Surrey, and then provide them with a warning ticket. It's an absolute yeah. waste of uh, taxpayers' money. It's a waste of uh, by. Um, bylaw officers' uh, time, they should be focused on uh, improving public safety and doing the things that they were hired to do. Have, have you heard that some of these bylaw enforcement officers were maybe a little uncomfortable doing this? Because I've sort of heard that. I've heard that as well, and I, I don't blame them. I think that puts them in a very uh, awkward situation. It's not what they were hired to do. Uh, they're hired to ensure that uh, Surrey is, is safe and that, in, in, in fact, uh, implement public safety, not uh, calling Uber drivers into Surrey to issue uh, warnings. It's clearly a waste of uh, manpower time. Okay, sir, uh, Uber, though, does not have a municipal business license from the city of Surrey, though, right? I guess that's what Mayor Doug McCallum and his people are saying, effectively, is, look, they don't have a license to operate here. They may have been approved by the province, but they require a municipal business license, and they don't have one, so we're within our rights to ticket them. Well, it hasn't gone before city council yet, so it's yeah. it's not really quite right what they're doing. Or in fact, it's not right at all. Uh, they do have a regional operating license, but it's not been decided uh, by city council yet whether or not a business license will be required for them to operate in Surrey or not. That hasn't come before council. It's not on the agenda tonight, uh, although I certainly will be raising it because I think it needs to be settled quickly. Residents of Surrey have been waiting far too long uh, for Uber for, or for other ride-hailing services to come here. Uh, the, they have been saying loud and clear they wanted it, and I think as a councillor, we're here to represent the residents of Surrey, and we need to get on with it now. Okay, speaking to Surrey City Councillor Linda Anna, so you believe that the city should should be issuing a, a business license now to Uber? We need to make a determination whether, in fact, they even need a business license to operate in Surrey. And if uh, the majority of council decides that's the way we need to go, we need to get on with it now. Okay, it's interesting to compare what's happening in Surrey to what has happened next door in Vancouver, where Vancouver is welcoming Surrey and Lyft to operate in the city. They turned around and issued them a business license in one day, saying, go ahead, go ahead and operate, we welcome you here. Do you think that this, the city of Surrey certainly had plenty of time to figure this out before now, hadn't they? I mean, this should have, you mentioned it's never, it hasn't come before city council yet. It should have come before council a long time ago, shouldn't it? 
Absolutely. I think this yeah. is absolutely tragic for the residents of Surrey. We are in dire need of improved transit in Surrey. We don't have enough buses. We don't have enough taxi uh, cabs. We don't yet have SkyTrain, all but a few stops in Surrey. Uh, this is a great opportunity for us to have another option for good transportation, and clearly the residents have been asking for it for a long while. Okay, we have asked for Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum to appear on the show today. We've also asked for some of your other fellow councillors who support the mayor. We have also asked for Surrey bylaw enforcement managers to come on the show today, and so far none of them are willing to talk. I, I just wonder why, like, if the mayor and these councillors and bylaw enforcement think this is the right thing to do, they should stand up and defend their decision. Absolutely. Instead of kind of running for cover. Absolutely. Whatever our belief is, if we can support it, we should be absolutely willing to come on the show and express our opinion. Yeah, yeah so I just repeat that offer again. We'd love to have the mayor or any of the councillors come on the show here to explain and defend what's what's going on here with this with these warnings being issued to these Uber, Uber drivers. What do you think is going to happen tonight at Council? Well, I'm really hopeful that it will come before Council, that either the Mayor will raise it. If the Mayor won't raise it or doesn't raise it tonight, then I'm going to ask that it be on the agenda for the next Council meeting so that we can get it resolved once and for all and get ride-hailing into Surrey that we've been waiting for for so long. Yeah, this almost seems like the mayor is kind of thumbing his nose at the provincial government as well, because the province has said very clearly that these companies now have a business or a provincial permit to, to operate in Metro Vancouver and that no municipality in the region can stop them from operating. They've been The province has been pretty clear on that point. So is this the mayor kind of just taking on the, the senior level of government here? The province has been very clear in terms of uh, what the rules are around uh, ride hailing. We need to get on with it now. Uh, we don't need to be waiting any longer. It's long overdue. Uh, we're one of the last major cities in North America, and probably within the world for that matter, to not have ride hailing, and we need to get on with it. What do you say to the taxi drivers out there? I know a lot of them listen to this show, and maybe a lot of them are cheering the mayor on here, saying, yeah, go ahead and go and, go and fight Uber. We don't want them here in Surrey. A lot of them say they spent a lot of money to buy a share and a taxi license to run a small business with the promise that they were going to get some kind of level playing field if Uber and Lyft were allowed to operate. Do you think there's a level playing field in there now? I mean, do you think the taxi company's got anything to complain about here? I do think the taxi drivers have, or taxi cab owners, I should say, do have something to complain about, not specifically around ride healing, but what I think we need to do is change the rules in which they operate with and make it more of a level playing field. And by that I mean uh, not uh, restricting them from crossing over zones. So if you pick up a passenger at the airport and you bring them to Surrey, Langley, or, or Burnaby, or wherever you take them, they should be allowed to pick up there as well. Yeah, because right now, this is one of the primary complaints from the, the taxi companies is that the Uber drivers and the Lyft drivers are able to operate wherever they want in the region, whereas they have to respect these municipal boundaries. But you know, the thing that people got to remember there, though, is that those boundaries, the taxi companies wanted those boundaries. I mean, like the Vancouver Taxi Association has resisted taking the boundaries down because they want to maintain their control of uh, the taxi business in Vancouver. So they want to maintain their own operating monopolies in their areas. So Ab Absolutely. And I think there's, there's absolutely room for both um, types of uh, ride services uh, throughout the Lower Mainland. I do agree that the playing field needs to be equalized. And I do think that uh, getting rid of the regional boundaries is one of the things that needs to happen. And I think from there, we need to let the marketplace prevail, as we do with many other types of businesses. Whoever delivers the best service at the most affordable price is the one that uh, will get the business. And I think there's business to go all the way around for different reasons. What do you think when the mayor says, when Mayor McCallum says that most people in Surrey, they don't want Uber and Lyft, that they're happy with the taxi industry? What do you, what do you think of that? I've not heard that from anyone um, other than a select few that may be involved in the taxi industry. Uh, everyone that I hear from is saying we want ride-hailing now, that we don't have enough options for transit uh, in Surrey, and I don't know who the mayor is talking to where he's getting that information. Okay, so what's your approach there tonight at council? Like, if this is not on the agenda, you're going to make sure it gets on the agenda, or what, do you, what are you going to do here? 
I'm going to request that it's on the agenda for the next council okay. meeting so that I okay. give time to staff to do diligence and come forward with recommendations for us. All right. Thank you very much for coming on. My pleasure, Mike. Have a good okay. day. I appreciate it. Thank you. As Linda Anna, Surrey City Councilor. Let's talk about the conservative leadership race now. Aaron O'Toole announcing his leadership campaign this morning. He will go up against uh, former conservative cabinet minister Peter McKay for the leadership. Also a couple other contestants in there, but I think this one Maybe shaping up is Peter McKay's job to lose, although I think Aaron, Aaron O'Toole could give him a run for his money. Let's check in with Michael Tobe now. He is a political analyst and columnist. He's a former speechwriter for then-Prime Minister Stephen Harper, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hiya, Michael. Hey, Mike. How are you today? I'm doing great. Tell me about Aaron O'Toole. Who is this guy for people who don't know him? Mean, a lot of people do, but who is he? Well, he's an Ontario MP. He's been around for a little bit, a few years now. Uh, his background is both in business and in the military, so he certainly has private sector experience <clears throat> as well as public, public sector experience. He's not widely known throughout the country, and again, that's not terribly surprising. Not every member of the Tory caucus, even the last one in 2015, was extremely well known. Um, but again, he's held senior portfolios. He certainly has the respect of some of his caucus colleagues, but I think you pointed out quite correctly, Mike, which is that it's going to be a very difficult task ahead of him to beat someone like uh, Peter McKay, who has really come running out of the gates pretty fast, has gained uh, at least 10 or 11 MPs endorsements by now, including as well MPPs, MLAs and others. And the party is starting to coalesce around him. But yeah, I agree with you. And I've said it as well. Aaron, Aaron O'Toole, if nothing else, will give him a good run for his money. Okay. What kind of message do you think he's got to... Uh, put forward here to convince the members of the federal conservative party to give him this job because right now it just seems to me like this is potentially setting up as a peter mckay coronation especially after we saw some other uh, key candidates uh, dropping out of the race and, and not running mm -hmm. not notably rona rona uh, rona ambrose right well rona ambrose and pierre Pauliavre dropped yeah. out uh, yeah. jean charret also did and that all happened within three successive days so whether you like the candidates that I mentioned or not, I mean, that's three different people who are out pretty fast. Um, for Aaron O'Toole to be competitive with uh, Peter McKay, I think he has to distinguish himself. Naturally, he doesn't have a policy platform out right now, so there's nothing for me to sort of observe and parse through to tell you which will be different. But one of the ways he can easily do it is that Peter McKay, although he has worked very well with uh, blue Tories or right-leaning Tories in the past, typically is associated with red Tory values, much like his late father, who was actually a cabinet minister for Brian Mulroney. I think that the best way for Aaron O'Toole to at least be competitive is to ensure that uh, fiscal conservative values are first and foremost, and whatever his positions are on social conservative positions, and I don't know all of them specifically, he has a choice what he wants to do. I believe he's a centrist socially, so he can sort of fight from that angle, which might make him a little bit different than Peter McKay. Or what he needs to do is come up with some unique policies on uh, tax policy, families, government policy, etc., to make sure that he is a clear alternative to Peter McKay. Because if all he looks like is something to, to the nature of Peter McKay light, it's not yeah. going to work very well for him. Okay, let's let's get the perspective of another great political analyst here, Sarah McIntyre on the line. She's a former press secretary to then Prime Minister Stephen Harper, and I'm very pleased to welcome her back. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. What do you think about this uh, matchup here so far? Aaron O'Toole announcing he will run for the federal conservative leadership here. You're going to have to take on Peter McKay. I think that's a tall order for him. Your thoughts? Yeah, I'd have to agree with you. I mean, it's uh, it's really at this point, it's Peter's to lose. Um, yeah. He has the name recognition, and he has a uh, he has great following. That's not just in the east, but also in Ontario, and of course, all with the uh, Canadian Armed Forces as well. Um, and it seems to me that Aaron's kind of positioned himself to be going after the same voter coalition that Peter is, and. I think that that, uh, that doesn't bode well for Aaron. I think Peter will be more successful in getting those votes out. Um, and, you know, the voting process is, is a bit unique as well. So it's every riding is weighted equally. So you need, to, you need to be on the ground and into the ridings and talking to members. Um, and that's going to make a difference about who comes out on top. But at this point, I would say it's definitely Peter's to lose. It's, um, yeah. 
a time for renewal and reflection for the party. So, you know, I hope that some of those discussions uh, take place over the next few months. Okay, speaking to Michael Tobe and Sarah McIntyre about the federal conservative leadership. Michael, it seems to me that one of the yeah. big stories here on this leadership is, is not so much who is running. I mean, we knew kind of widely speculated Peter McKay would go in there and Aaron O'Toole yes. would, would take another crack at it. But it's like you mentioned, the people who have dropped out. So we've had some very high-profile people announce that they are not going to run for this job. Rana Ambrose, Pierre Poliev, as you mentioned, Jean Charest, the former Quebec premier. Why are these mm-hmm. people dropping out? I mean, those are some big names that don't want this job. How, why is that happening? Well, look, I mean, obviously, they all have their personal reasons. Some may be tied to uh, family. Some may be tied to business. Some, in the case of, say, Rona Ambrose, for example, she was sort of happy where she is in Alberta in the private sector. And you have to respect them because, obviously, and Sarah knows this as well, anyone who enters public life or wants to become a politician, be it just a backbencher, a cabinet minister, or prime minister, it's a tough road to hoe. And there's a lot of stress that you can feel personally on your family, with friends, loved ones, etc. And I understand why some of them don't want to necessarily make that commitment. Mr. Polievra, for example, used that also as part of his element that he had missed most of his daughter's first year of life, and he just didn't feel comfortable doing much more than that. Because you're basically looking at roughly, let's say to be nice, two, two and a half years of being in opposition, even though it's a minority government with uh, Justin Trudeau and the Liberals, it's a strong minority. And for that reason, things will just sort of stay the way they are because parties are obviously bending about for money and attention and they don't want to necessarily run back into another election. So with all that in mind, you're looking at the possibility of staying in opposition for a while, all the various things you have to deal with in your personal and public life, And some people just don't want to make that commitment. And Mr. Charest, uh, Ms. Ambrose, and Mr. Poliavra have their reasons, obviously, some of which they've said and some which I'm sure they hold privately. But we have to respect that position. And Peter McKay, Aaron O'Toole, and a few others have chosen to make that sacrifice. So we have to admire them for it and look at their credentials. Sir, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, these are some big names not mm-hmm. running for this uh, job, notably Rana Ambrose. I think there was a lot of speculation that she would run and would likely be the front runner if she did put her name forward. Uh, wh- what are your thoughts about all of them dropping out? Yeah, I know. It was it was disappointing to see uh, Rana not uh, jump in the race, but it's, it's understandable. I mean, think about it now, uh, Mike. I mean, if you put your name in to run for a leader of a, of a party, uh, your entire life is on earth with a microscope for the past 20 years plus. Uh, and, you know, we as, uh, you know, the public and media, we kind of judge people's actions from 20 years ago with today's values. And that's always a very difficult thing uh, to pivot from. And so you are signing up for, you know, having your life um, under a microscope, uh, not just for the leadership, but it, should you win, that will continue. And so it's not uh, a decision to take lightly. Um, it's, it's your decision, but it affects your entire family. Um, and it will be a long way before we uh, are in a general election. So I think it's interesting, too, you know, we're in Ontario. I'm in Ontario right now, and the Ontario Liberal Party is going through its own leadership contest. And, and again, you see some of these names kind of coming up that all have decided not to run, and you're kind of getting the, the B team that's, that's looking at taking over, over the Ontario Liberal Party. And I, I think it's not just something that is, uh, you know, about this particular party or the Conservative Party. I think it's in general people people are less and less eager to throw their hat in, even if, like, I mean, this t- contest really is, you probably are going to be the next prime minister if you win, and you're going to be prime minister of a G7 country, and we still have people reticent to throw their hat in. So I think that's a, an interesting thing, is that less and less people want to get involved in politics. Sarah, I agree with you on uh, Peter McKay, that this is his to lose. This guy had been kind of anointed as a potential leader of this party some time ago, and I think he's clearly the front runner and the betting favorite to win this job. What is his appeal potentially to Canadians? I mean, what is Peter McKay's brand? How do you sort of analyze him? You know, I don't know if you caught his launch speech on Saturday, but it was probably one of the best speeches I've ever seen delivered. 
uh, by any politician. It was inspiring. It was authentic. It was uh, talking about family values. It was ambitious, looking forward. It was uniting. Um, so I think kind of where Peter stands is, you know, this party is part and parcel of some of the decisions and sacrifices he made, um, you know, uh, forming with, with Stephen Harper. Um, and so he's going to play on that. I'm a true conservative. This is my legacy. And going forward, you know, I'm the progressive voice um, that can unite the country. I, I value pipelines. I value the West. I value the armed forces. I am a family man. I believe in supporting the family. I believe in the economy. I believe in uh, standing up for rights and principles on international policy. So I think he has a, a pretty high level of credentials and, and positions um, going forward. Now, those are all going to have to get played out and, and seeing exactly what his policy positions are. But I think he has this unifying uh, voice within the party and people look at him and say, yeah, he's been in cabinet. He's had tough roles. And and maybe this is the guy that we need to take on Justin Trudeau in the next election. election. Uh, should it be... Uh, Justin Trudeau okay. running. I mean, that's still a question. Mike, Michael Tobe, can uh, McKay beat Trudeau? Again, and I, I think Sarah has covered it quite well, part of the problem is we don't know his policies right now. So it's, it's very difficult for me to look at an invisible piece of paper and tell you that he can. But let's put it this way. He should be able to. And I think that Justin Trudeau has shown, in my opinion, uh, an ineptness as prime minister. I think he's one of the weakest prime ministers and liberal leaders, certainly in many, many years, if ever. And he is ripe for the picking. He was ripe for the picking in last year's federal election, but we know what happened. Um, so, yes, I think that if Peter McKay is able to establish some solid policy positions that unite left-leaning conservatives, which are red Tories, and right-leaning conservatives, which are blue Tories, together, and follows the model of uh, my old friend Bob Stephen Harper's incremental conservatism. I shouldn't say mine. It's actually ours, because actually Sarah worked for him as well. Um, (laughs) But using incremental conservatism where, you know, you basically have fiscal conservative issues and social conservative slash social centrist issues and work on them properly to meld it into policies that inspire Canadians to vote for you, not just small-c conservatives, but others, because remember, to win an election, having the small C conservative base behind you is great, Mike, but you also need everybody else. And lots of Canadians don't necessarily okay. think like Sarah and I on various issues. Okay, but here's if what I'll say. ultimately wins and does it, then yes, I think it yeah. is doable and he can be Trudeau. Talking about the federal conservative leadership, another contender enters the race today, Aaron O'Toole. He will take on Peter McKay. Uh, Marilyn Gladue and Derek Sloan among uh, the leadership uh, contenders as well, candidates. Richard DeCarey, um, my guest Sarah McIntyre, Michael Tobe. Sarah, real quick, this leadership race and the troubles that conservatives have had over over uh, same-sex marriage issues and abortion issues, is this still a problem? I mean, you got this Richard DeCarey guy uh, giving an interview saying being gay is a choice and all the other candidates kind of condemning that. This guy has zero chance to win this leadership. But here he is sort of putting that, making statements like that. Is this a problem for this party? Uh, it's a problem for him. I don't think it's uh, a problem for the party. I think the responses from the candidates, uh, you know, clearly shows that his views are outdated. They're not part of it and they're not welcome in the Conservative Party. You know, it really does rest with the um, leadership uh, election organizing committee called LEOC. Um, Dan Nolan and, and former uh, cabinet minister MP Lisa Raitt are the co-chairs. And they have the ability to shut this guy down by not allowing him to run for uh, the leadership. Uh, and I think that that's something that um, they should be carefully looking at, uh, because if we want to close the book on these single issues uh, and say that they are not welcome in this party, uh, then, you know, the, this is the opportunity to kind of shut that down. Um, doesn't mean that so, con- so other social conservatives that are not single issue um, members are, aren't welcome in the party. I mean, they still have a very strong role to play in the party. But when you're talking about same-sex marriage and you're talking about, um, you know, uh, equal rights uh, and abortion, that those issues are long settled with Canadians and they should be within our party as well. Okay. The, the time is flowing by here. We've only got one minute left. Michael, do you want to weigh in there on that? Well, sure. Very quickly. I've been actually asked this a couple of times already in the last little while. And 
I actually am a fiscal conservative and a moderate social conservative, so I kind of fit under that realm. And I can tell you that when I heard Mr. Descartes make those statements, I was disgusted by it. It's, it's nothing I agree with. It's nothing that represents my point of view. And much like Sarah, I really think that the Conservative Party of Canada is tired of this discussion and tired of these types of people coming in and claiming that they speak on behalf of many of the members. They might, you know, certainly a small amount for sure, but not many more than that. I don't believe, obviously, in tossing him out of the leadership race. In fact, if anything, I think you put him in there and you keep isolating and you keep hammering okay. him over and over again until people finally get the point that, right. that conservatives in this country are welcoming of all points of view and operate under a Big Ten philosophy. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. So that's Guys, the only purpose I think someone like this serves. Michael, Sarah, thanks for your time today. Thanks so My much. pleasure. I appreciate it. Michael Tobe, Sarah McIntyre on the federal conservative leadership race. Dear basketball. From the moment I started rolling my dad's tube socks and shooting imaginary game winning shots in the great Western form. I knew one thing was real. I fell in love with you. A love so deep, I gave you my all. From my mind and body, to my spirit and soul. Wow, welcome back to the show. Mike Smith filling in for Simi. That, of course, the voice of Kobe Bryant. And boy, that really cuts deep listening to that after the tragic events of the weekend. And Kobe Bryant, the basketball legend dying in that helicopter crash what you just heard there was from a short animated film called dear basketball uh, that kobe bryant uh, narrated he actually won an academy award uh, for that uh, short film now of course the world focusing on the loss of kobe bryant wow what a shocking story on the weekend let's check in now with arash markazi very fine sports columnist at the LA Times, Rashman, I know you've been. Uh, people have been reaching out to you from around the world. I appreciate you taking the time for us today. Of course, thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. Um, this is one of those events where, when people sort of get that news for the first time, they they might remember years later exactly where they were and how they learned that uh, Kobe Bryant had, had died in the in this crash. I found out yesterday, flipping through my Twitter feed on my on my smartphone. Uh, how did you find out yesterday, and and what went through your mind? <laughs> Yeah, I uh, landed in Miami for the Super Bowl and, uh, you know, turned on the phone and, you know, got 65 text messages and, and I didn't know what had happened. Normally it's a couple and, uh, you know, they, they were all Kobe related. A lot of them were just questions and I and I didn't know what the questions were talking about. Like, is it true? And so, uh, but um, yeah, I mean, it was one of those moments where I'm sitting on the plane and I'm like, there's, there's no, like, it was beyond surreal. And I, there's not a word to describe the feeling of being on that plane and seeing that um, headline. I, I, I could not believe it. Yeah, what a shock. Uh, you, of course, interviewed him many times and have known him for, as your work as an L.A. Times a sports columnist and a reporter. What, what would you tell us about today? What was he like in real life? I mean, he was a, a fantastic guy. I mean, he was a guy who became more reflective towards the end of his career, um, was a family man in retirement. Uh, you know, there's a lot of guys who, once they're done playing, they, they, they want to go on into coaching or they want to be a GM or team executive. He had no aspirations to do that. Uh, he was just focused on being a father. And, and in the, uh, like, as it relates to coaching, he wanted to coach his kids. So he loved uh, coaching Gianna and her team. And um, really, you know, he was content with the career he had had. I mean, there was nothing more that he wanted to accomplish. But I think Gigi and her passion for the game reinvigorated his passion for the game. Yeah, I was speaking to Arash Markhani from the LA Times. Arash, you wrote a, a very, I thought, a very touching kind of heartfelt column about Kobe's death on the weekend, focusing on that very fact, his 
his kind of connection to his family. Do you think that's something that became more and more important for him after he left basketball? Yeah, you know, because we had touched on it, how, you know, when he retired in 2016, he didn't really go to a lot of Lakers games. And he said, if I go to a game, that's one night that I can't be at home with my kids. And so that was so important to him. And really, the only reason that he would go to a game is if Gianna wanted to go to a game. And so they would go to games together. And, uh, you know, he really loved the fact that she was so inquisitive about the game. She had so many specific questions about players and movement and adjustments and things like that and so um again you know that 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 he never forced the game on his kids but Gigi organically loved the game what kind of legacy does he leave behind first of all maybe talk about his legacy as a basketball player obviously goes down as one of his all-time greats yeah i mean definitely i i think for my book one of the top five players of all time but uh you know i think one of the things that, that, that this moment is hopefully taught us is, is just to appreciate players when you have them. And so I think a lot of times we get bogged down into, you know, who's the best and is he better than Michael Jordan or LeBron James? He was a fantastic player. He was a five-time champion. You know, with my view, the greatest players of all time. And, and in Los Angeles specifically, just so important to that uh, city. Yeah, speaking of L.A., Arash, you're a columnist with the L.A. Times, and what's the reaction there in in L.A.? How how would you describe it, or can you sum it up in words? Yeah, it's it's just a city that's lost its heartbeat right now. It's I mean, I think we're all still coming to terms with the fact that you know Kobe's gone, and it's uh, and it's one of those things where it, you know. <laughs> I think the fact that that he passed with his daughter and seven other people that that's just uh, so heartbreaking. And Gianna, someone that we saw grow up, and we've we've we've, we've seen him with his kids and Vanessa and, and Natalia. And so um, it's a city that I really can't imagine what it's going to be like tomorrow night when the Lakers play the Clippers. I I, I don't know what they have planned, but I, I'm sure there's going to be something happening there. Just got a one minute left, Arash. This is one of the particularly poignant parts of this is that he, he this is a guy who had so much more living to do. I mean, kind of had a, a second act uh, warming up here in in business and philanthropy. What are, what are your thoughts on that and what he on what he might have gone on to accomplish? Yeah, I mean, here that that's what I mean. There's so many sad parts about the story, but you know, he was just beginning the second chapter of his career where he really wanted to focus on inspiring the next generation. And I think he wanted to, you know, have children's books and a cartoon, and and you know, obviously he he loved coaching his daughter's team. So um, the fact that he won't have that kind of an impact on the next generation the way he wanted to is very sad. Arash, thank you for taking the time for us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay, you bet. That is Arash Markazi, very fine sports columnist for the LA Times newspapers, uh, media reaching out to him from around the world uh, in reaction to the death of Kobe Bryant on the weekend. Really appreciate him taking the time for us there. From headaches to heart problems, what you are eating, could it be negatively impacting your health? Claire Allen and Nikki Reitmeyer from 980 AM CKNW. Take a look at that now. You've heard this before. The human body is a machine which uses food for fuel. And eat healthy. You want to get seven servings of primarily vegetables. A balanced diet combining foods from all three groups keeps our bodies running smoothly. Just making a few conscious choices about what and how you eat is all you need to get started. This goes for every kid or six-foot athlete. All you really are is what you eat. But let's be honest, we're not eating healthy whole foods all the time. In 2018, about 40% of Canadians ate at a fast food restaurant one to two times per week. So instead of focusing on what you should be eating, let's take a look at what foods you should avoid. Foods that are already in your diet and that might be causing you health problems. I'm Nikki Reitmeyer. And I'm Claire Allen. And together, we wanted to take a look at what in the Canadian diet can be detrimental or straight-up dangerous for our health. Claire, do you ever get headaches? Every once in a while, but nothing too serious. Yeah, I don't really either, but I do know some people who get them, and I know a couple people who get really bad migraines. 
And migraines, they're not just your typical headache. These are severe, throbbing, painful headaches. They can be so bad that they make you feel nauseous or sensitive to light. Now, doctors say that a hot pack or warm shower can help, but so can changing your diet. So I went to the UBC hospital to speak with Dr. Sean Spacey. She specializes in headaches. Hi, I'm uh, Dr. Sean Spacey. I'm a neurologist and uh, director of the headache clinic at UBC. There's many different types of headaches. There's over 200 different types of headaches. But generally, I think when the population think of headaches, they think of tension-type headaches and migraine headaches. For those 200 different types of headaches, (laughs) are they all influenced to some degree by diet, or can they be influenced by what you consume? Migraine is what we know the most about. And so we know that the migraine headaches are the ones that are most certainly influenced by diet. It isn't just unhealthy food that can be triggers for migraines. A healthy food like citrus can trigger a migraine. Other triggers for people, um, sometimes dairy, aspartame can be a trigger. And that's hidden in, it could be in gum or in mints. It could be in the yogurt you have in the mornings. And of course, it's in pot. Dr. Spacey said that if you think one of these foods could be causing your migraines, then try taking it out of your diet for three months or so. Now, the expectation isn't that the patient will become migraine-free because there's never any one thing that really causes migraine. They tend to be additive. But take citrus out for three months. Are the migraines less frequent and are they less intense? If they are, then that might be a trigger for the individual. Migraines are painful. They can lead to other health problems too, but they're not generally deadly. However, heart disease certainly is, and it's strongly linked to diet. A new study from Harvard says eating nuts could lower the risk of heart disease in These people with 10 foods diabetes. affect your risk of heart disease the most. If you've ever had a heart attack, that a heart-healthy diet can help stop or even reverse heart disease. From cereal cuts the risk of dying from heart disease or stroke by 35%. Heart disease is the second leading cause of death in Canada. It seems hard to believe, but every hour, 12 Canadian adults who have been diagnosed with heart disease die. So, Claire, what's causing it? Well, Nikki, it turns out a lot of it has to do with your diet. To find out more, I spoke with Karen Mornin. She's a dietitian with the Healthy Heart Program. I asked her what foods are most dangerous for heart health. These foods would include things like chicken nuggets, prepared foods, pizza, frozen instant meals, those instant noodles, right? Very little nutrients, as well as commercially baked goods. Think of cookies, pies, muffins, and the sugar-sweetened beverages. Everything from sugary um, coffee drinks to pop to flavored yogurts. So exactly what makes those foods so dangerous? The main reason is actually they raise risk factors for heart disease. So saturated fat found in those commercially baked goods, processed meats like salamis, found in cheese and pizzas, all those increase risk the bad or LDL cholesterol. And when that goes up, that's a contributing factor for plaque in the arteries in your heart, and that could potentially lead to a heart attack. The other factor is diets high in sodium over a lifetime or a long time can lead to heart failure. That's an enlarged heart. I got to admit, I think that we're all guilty. I know that I sure am of eating foods like that. But what can we eat to improve heart health? Adding color to your plate, half your plate is vegetables, is what the aim would be. So it's one part. And just swapping out white rice for brown rice. So choosing whole grains over refined, oatmeal is easily readily available, easily prepared, barley, bulgur, quinoa. A lot of restaurants offer these foods these days. So this is what to choose. Choose the whole grains over the refined. And then what about beans? Baked beans and tomato sauce, great choice. Or beans, lentils take just as long as rice to cook, so simply adding them to your rice would be an easy way. So there is really easy ways to add things like the whole grains, the fruits and vegetables. So if you suffer from migraines or have concerns about your heart, changing your diet might help. But of course, always consult your doctor first. For the Global News Health Series, I'm Claire Allen. And I'm Nikki Reitmeyer. 
Let's talk about the leadership of the B.C. Green Party here now. Now, Andrew Weaver the has stepped aside as the Green Party leader. The race is on to replace him. And we have our first contestant uh, to seek the leadership of the B.C. Green Party, Green Party MLA for the Cowichan Valley, Sonia Furstenau. And I'm very pleased to welcome her. Hi, Sonia. Thanks for coming on. Hi, Mike. Happy to be here. Okay, we uh, this has been called the worst kept secret in BC that you're running for this job, but it's all official now, right? What's your message to Green Party uh, members out there? Well, the overarching message is that change isn't just possible, it's actually necessary, and we have to get working on the transition and transformation of our economy uh, into a 21st century world that we need to build right here in BC. Okay, why do you want this job yourself? Hmm. Well, I think that uh, (laughs) there's an exciting prospect about being able to bring people together under the green banner and to help uh, share the fact that we stand for uh, a lot more than what we've been uh, often talked about. But uh, I'm excited to share a vision for BC that really is inclusive and exciting. It's about addressing the challenges we have and really recognizing the potential we have here in BC to be a leader on so many fronts. And I'm going to be working hard to, uh, to do that. What do, you, what do you say to some people who think the Green Party has been a little too close to the NDP and this minority government? I mean, we've had situations here now where the Site C Dam is being built. There's a massive LNG plant going to be built in Kitimat. There are other examples where maybe the Green Party didn't get what maybe members would like to see under this NDP government. Do you think the Green Party has been been tough enough with the new Democrats in this governing partnership? Or do you you think as a new leader, you might sort of drive a harder bargain with them? Well, I think starting from, you know, as three MLAs in the legislature, we have affected an enormous amount of change in BC politics, everything from uh, you know, taking the lead by banning big money ourselves and seeing that happen in bringing that into legislation, uh, the lobbying reforms that we've seen, the initiatives on childcare that we've jointly worked with on the, with the NDP, but also being the only caucus and really the only three members of the, of the BC legislature that are standing up on issues like the LNG plant and the massive government subsidies to prop that up. On a day like today, Jeremy Rifkin's latest book is coming out to say, you know, this is absolutely at the wrong direction to be taking economically. And he's projecting just a, a vast number of stranded assets in the oil and gas industry, even 10 years from now. We really need to be pivoting to a future economy that is rooted in renewable energy, sustainable industrial practices, and recognizing, you know, the backbone of the BC economy really lies in small businesses and on kind of innovation that we see in the high tech and the creative industry. Okay, well, if we are in a, I guess, a climate change emergency, and and you are so opposed to the development of natural gas here in BC in this in this giant mega project with this LNG plant in Kitimat and the pipelines that are being built, why do you why do you continue to prop up the government? Well, I. I we hear a lot from members, and it's a very small number of members who, who want us to see the bring, bring the government down because there's a lot of other work that's going on. And the real question here is, how does that serve the public? And, you know, we throw everything back to an election. You have two major parties in B.C. that have uh, committed to this outcome with LNG Canada. What we are going to put our energy into is bringing forward a platform with policies that BC citizens will be able to recognize as a real vision for the future. And between now and the next election, we will be assembling the most extraordinary candidates and putting together a vision that people will recognize is an exciting one for BC's future. Speaking to Sonia Furstenau, she is the Green Party MLA for Cowichan Valley, and she announced this morning she will run to be the next leader of the BC Green Party. Andrew Weaver had said in some of his year-end interviews, and I know you're very familiar with what, what is, his comments were here about the, the future leadership of the party. He said that, to quote him exactly, I think it would benefit the party to have a leader from the lower mainland. He said, I, I recognize our growth is limited unless we have a presence in the lower mainland. And that's something I hope the membership considers. 
Um, I mean, you're obviously not from the Lower Mainland. You represent a Vancouver Island riding. What do you think about his comments? So I think more important than where a leader is from, and, and as we know, the premier right now is from Vancouver Island, I think the most important thing to think about is where can the leader take the next party in the next election. And really the work of a leader is to recruit the most amazing team of candidates, to build really strong rela- relationships with stakeholders and with people who are deeply informed on policy that can be part of building our policy and platform. We need to be able to inspire and energize grassroots organizers that are going to staff and volunteer our local campaigns and really put forward a compelling vision. Those things aren't determined by geography. They're determined by what the vision is being brought forward. I, I guess, uh, and I've talked to Weaver about this as well, He seemed, I guess he thinks that maybe there's a perception that the party is kind of in this southern vancouver island or greater victoria bubble where the where the three elected mlas including yourself are sort of from the south island and if you don't kind of break out of that bubble you're not going to expand the party's voter appeal how can you do that how can you kind of Mm. appeal appeal to voters sort of beyond what you've already achieved to this to to this state so it's a great question and and actually the last Three years, I have spent much of the summers traveling around to many communities all over BC, and that deeply informs a lot of my views on policies and platforms. The disconnect between decisions being made at the provincial level and communities feeling like they're not being listened to. I've heard from so many communities, for example, uh, outside of the Lower Mainland that are trying to move forward with really innovative ideas, particularly around renewable energy projects around wanting to have more community forests so that they can determine how those forests are managed and be able to supply local mills like we have in the Kootenays, the Kolesnikov mill, which is doing value added. Uh, and so I, I have been building relationships and listening in those communities. And in, in terms of the lower mainland, absolutely we need to expand uh, what we're discussing about uh, when it comes to issues for the lower mainland. We need to look at transit infrastructure as a, a deep need uh, in the Lower Mainland, as well as the affordability crisis. And we know that the housing homelessness crisis and opioid crisis continues to rage. And those are going to be priorities for us. Okay. If you do become the new leader of the BC Green Party, and clearly you're the front runner for the job here, I think at this point, would you continue the governing arrangement with with the NDP and, and guarantee that you would continue to vote to keep the John Horgan government in power or do you think maybe it's time for a rethink of that or, or do you keep the gut do you keep Horgan in power all the way through to the fall of 2021 so I'm one of the 44 signatories to the confidence and supply agreement and I was also part of the negotiating team that that put that agreement together of course we are committed to adhering to the commitment that we made in that agreement We're also very committed to working over the next year and a half to put together an extraordinary team of candidates and a vision for BC that will be uh, responding to what we see uh, as as problems with how the NDP and, frankly, also how the Liberals chose to uh, govern. And we are absolutely committed to bringing that vision forward and a slate of candidates that will be incredible. Do you think that, I mean, right now you guys have got, I guess, kind of like a detente with the NDP right now, but once you get into an election campaign, I would think the Green Party is obviously a threat to the New Democrats. We've seen some of these elections get nasty in the past. If you're the leader of the party, are you ready for a fight with Horgan? (laughs) Yeah, we're ready for everything, and we're really proud of the record that we have the last Uh, two and a half years of the caucus and the four years that Andrew put in before that, the Greens have demonstrated that even a small number of us can make an incredibly huge difference in BC politics. We will continue to do that and we will show that we are an absolutely important and necessary alternative to the two parties uh, that are really stuck in backward-looking approaches to economics, to resource management, to solving the inequality crisis, and to recognizing that things that we need to invest in, like education from the youngest years to the postgraduate, is really the backbone of, of how to have a, a thriving, successful province. Watching your, your campaign very closely, thank you very much for coming on.
Thanks so much, Mike. Great to speak with you. I thank you very much. That is Sonia Firstenau. She is the Green Party MLA for the riding of Cowichan Valley. She announced this morning that she will seek the leadership of the BC Green Party being vacated by Andrew Weaver. So she is the first declared candidate for this job. I suspect there will be others that come forward, but I think you got to probably put her down as the betting favorite or the or the at least the front runner now news conference scheduled for later this afternoon at 3 p.m surrey mayor doug mccallum will be speaking to reporters about the city's showdown with uber the ride-hailing giant legal to operate uh in the lower mainland according to the passenger transportation board they got their approvals last week but the city of surrey saying don't you dare show up in the city of surrey if you're an uber driver or they may write you a ticket. There's already been warning tickets written up for Uber drivers, threats of $500 fines. Can the city really do that? Well, let's check in with Paul Doroshenko, the lawyer at Acumen Law. This is his wheelhouse for sure. Hi, Paul. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks a lot for coming on. What do you think about these tickets to Uber drivers? Can Surrey do that? Well, it's an interesting thing. Uh, I mean, the province, of course, has uh, greater power than the city does, right? The the city only exists under the legislative authority of the province. There's the Community Charter Act and um, various different pieces of legislation that gives the city its power. And the province has come along uh, and said, look, we are facilitating this with the the Transportation Act changes. uh, And we're going to have ride-hailing. It's going to exist. And basically, given the direction to the cities. Uh, if you want to license it or whatever, you're allowed to license it. You can have a licensing scheme. You know, the city of Richmond apparently is, has been paid by Lyft to be able to operate there. Uh, but can you just uh, not do it? And that is, I guess, I think the question that uh, people are going to be asking and ultimately you know, may end up resolved in court with the citizens of Surrey uh, t- paying their tax dollars to, uh, for a legal challenge here. Okay, uh, the city has issued warning notices to Uber drivers. There's been some reports as well that the Uber, the company, may have received notification of $500 fines, although I have been talking to Uber officials this morning, and they say they have not received any notification of a $500 fine from the city of Surrey. So that's a little unclear, but would this stand up in court? Like if an Uber driver came to you and said, hey, I just got written up for a $500 ticket here for operating in Surrey. Can you can you represent me in court? Would you take on that case and do you think you'd win? Well, I think it's really it comes down to a division of powers issue. And would I win? I don't know. I mean, you never know what you're going to get when you go to court. You, you, yeah. Sometimes it's a crapshoot. But the, uh, the, you know, it's clear that they are entitled to legislate taxis, right? And they've got a piece of uh, bylaw that regulates taxis and defines all of these different services. And the closest definition of this uh, is their bylaw for taxis. And their bylaw for taxis requires that you have a license. Now, you know, the city of Surrey, I think, is is mistaking their licensing authority when it comes to the Cannabis Act and, and trying to sort of use that same power when it comes to... Uh, to issuing licenses for for ride-hailing, because in the Cannabis Act, they're allowed to say, you know what, we're not going to have this in our community. They're allowed to tell the manager, like it's written into the provincial legislation, they're allowed to tell the person who's called the manager for the Cannabis Act, no, we don't want it in our city. We don't want you to be able to retail, sell cannabis or cultivate cannabis. Uh, But we don't have such an indication in any other piece of provincial legislation with respect to ride-hailing. There isn't something saying that, you know, you don't have to have it. Um, so it it seems to be a fairly clear legislative intent to have it, and the next thing is for the city to facilitate it, right? Um, so that would be the argument that you would take um, that it, the city is just not complying with the uh, uh, with their requirements under the law. If they are not going to legislate, then there's a legislative vacuum. Of course, they're going to say that we've legislated and we're just not issuing permits. At which point, I don't think that's a proper exercise of their discretion. So now you're looking at uh, suing them to do something. And you can sue an organize, You can sue a government office to compel them to do their job. Speaking to lawyer Paul Doroshenko about the showdown here between the city of Surrey and Uber, I'm taking a look on on Twitter, Paul, at a tweet from Sav Dalywal. He is a Burnaby city councillor. He also happens to be the chair of Metro Vancouver, and he writes, "quote It's incredibly upsetting that a mega corporation can boastfully and brazenly." flaunt bylaws of a duly elected government without any consequences he goes on he says this country has a legal framework to address grievances we need to condemn 
corporate roughshod. Basically, I guess standing up for the city of Surrey and taking a shot at at Uber there for doing what for operating in the city against the wishes of the mayor. But well, I mean, there there are no but there are no court, bylaws. Right? There are no bylaws in the city of Surrey on this, though, right? Well, there's the taxi bylaw, right? And there's their licensing These bylaw. These aren't taxis. I, I I know, but it's the the definition that's in their bylaw is the closest thing that you've got, um, and. Uh, you know, essentially, that's the position that they're going to take on it. Uh, you know, it, it shall be unlawful for any person to engage in or operate any of the several trades, occupations, callings, or business undertakings or things classified in this bylaw. And that, the closest thing that you're going to find is this bylaw for that. So the point is they're not facilitating the law. I think, you know, what you would have to do is uh, is basically sue the city uh, with a mandamus application in Superior Court to compel them to create a, a regulatory scheme or wow. to find an exemption. Um, so, I mean, he's, he's right that Uber is flaunting the law. Uber may be flaunting the law for the sake of getting uh, a case that they can fight and then take to superior court. Uh, that's one way of doing it. The other way is just to make the application to court, right? Okay. If the city of Surrey decides we don't want Uber, I mean, the mayor has made that clear that he doesn't want Uber or Lyft in his town. Uh, McCallum still has a, a narrow majority on that council. He's lost a few of his councillors, but he's still got majority power there in that Surrey City Council, at least for now. Could they dig in here, in your estimation, and, and maybe pass a bylaw that makes it very clear that Uber and Lyft are not allowed in the city? I think they'd have a big problem with that, because as I say, their legislative authority only stems from the the provincial legislation, and it's provincial legislation that has created this to facilitate it. So if they went out and made a, we're not going to allow Uber legislation, I think that would be in defiance of the provincial legislation, and the provincial legislation would trump it. The problem, of course, is that, um, you know, right now we've got the vacuum. It's not really a vacuum because they've sort of have already done this with their taxi uh, bylaw, basically prohibits Uber as it stands because you can't get a license because they're not issuing a license. Right. Um, you know, you, the application to court, I think, would be to compel them to, to either issue a license of some sort, uh, I mean, or create a regulatory scheme, uh, or declare that it doesn't apply. Do you think that's where this is heading, Paul? Is this going to end up in court, do you think? You know, it just, I cannot see the people of Surrey being supportive of this, and it really seems like a, a, a political issue um, that the city should step up and, and turn this into a revenue generator for the people of Surrey. I mean, the whole purpose or a, a, a purpose, a significant purpose of cities having licensing authority is actually to generate revenue. There's no, nobody's denying that. Um, why not use it to generate some revenue? Uh, I, I don't understand why they would, would uh, do something that is really defying, I think, the will of most people in Surrey. I think most people would like to see ride-hailing. Uh, there's problems with it. We like to see it governed. Uh, you know, our provincial government has come up with some regulations. We're going to learn as we go, uh, and things will change down the road. But it yeah. just seems to me that it's it's really in opposition to the political will. Thanks for your expertise. Yeah, nice to speak with you. I appreciate it. That is Paul Doroshenko. He's with the Acumen Law Corporation.